0: Hello there and welcome to episode 90, the big 9-0 of this Value Through Vulnerability podcast. I'm really grateful for you joining me today, thank you. Uh, my name's Gary Turner, your host, and today I'm really excited to bring you Agabaya, who is a culture strategist, author, keynote speaker, and just all around really awesome human being. I had the pleasure to present alongside and meet at the Ignite Movement Conference back in St. Garland, Switzerland a few months ago. Um, What I loved about this conversation with Aga, uh, just to share a couple of my my key takeaways, is she speaks about the fact that culture is not just global and that culture is very much local. And I just love how she speaks to the fact that we all have agency, that we all, within our immediate sphere of influence, are able to impact and indeed you know, shift uh, the culture, both of ourselves individually and also those within our sphere of influence. I think there's so much uh, positivity and opportunity in that. I also enjoyed hearing her speak about the fact that she considers um, cultural revolutionaries. Um, of those, those people, one of the main characteristics is that they lead from the heart and purpose rather than ego. That is such a cricket, critical um, reflection, one that I certainly speak to through this conversation personally. As someone that's uh, been on my own journey from just my head uh, down towards my heart, um, therefore trying to... Yes let's say, stay stay out of the ego head as uh, as much as possible. And the other thing I really enjoyed Aga saying as part of, just as, to wrap up my intro here, she says that it's not just about fitting in, it's also about fitting out, and you need to combine the two. And I'd love to know what's coming up for you when you hear that quote. So please enjoy the conversation. Um, do connect with Aga. You'll find her contact details in the show notes. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing from you. Going forward, and I'll speak to you again as we wrap up this conversation. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And I bring you today an absolutely awesome human being in Agabaya, who is the founder and CEO of Agabaya and Associates. She's also an author, a keynote speaker, and also a podcast host. So, Aga, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Gary. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: How does it feel being on the other side of the mic?
1: Well, it's different, isn't it? And I know that you've had this experience as well. I really enjoy being a guest, though. And um, before we start recording, we talked a little bit about how you get a chance to reflect and think about what you're doing. So I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Lovely. Well, as we get going, would you mind just sharing with uh, those kind people that have joined us in conversation today a little bit more of your background? So how did you come into being so passionate about culture? And you know, is that your main passion or are there other things going on for you?
1: So I would say professionally, certainly, this is my main passion. And it's an interesting question how I became so passionate. So let me think. I think there were a lot of events in my life that put me on this path, but I don't want to take you too way back. Um, so I think the first time I realized that culture is super, super important is when I got a job that I believed was my dream job. So, you know, on paper, it looked amazing. And I thought I was really the luckiest person on earth to, to get that job. And then the reality struck me and I realized that actually culture in the team that I was working in in the whole company wasn't that healthy it was pretty toxic and so that made me think about how important that is and also how hard it is to figure out what the culture of a company is being on the outside um, and one of the one of the conclusions that I drew from that experience is that culture is not just global. Culture is very much local. And sometimes you can work in an organization that is believed to have an amazing culture but end up in a team that doesn't have a culture that helps you to grow and thrive and perform.
0: So what was it for you, if I, if I may ask, Agger? So it must have been quite disheartening to go from that, like, I believe I've got my dream job, and then to feel that actually it wasn't. What what went on for you at that point in time, out of interest, your thinking or, you know, your emotions?
1: Well, I think that I was shattered, to be honest, (laughs) because my expectations were huge. So the fall was from really high up, and I really was shattered. And I have to say that um, I was really looking forward to my first day on the job. And I still remember the day when I entered the office and it looked amazing and everyone looked amazing and friendly and very elegant and intelligent. And and then, you know, I, I had this moment and people talk about honeymoon on a new job. It usually lasts a few months. But for me, that honeymoon lasted a few hours because after a few hours my onboarding buddy appeared and he basically said, Would you like to go out for coffee? And I said, yeah, sure. And when we ordered our coffees, he proceeded to give me the skinny on what it really was to be working in a company. And it didn't sound so encouraging. And so, yeah, so the feelings were a huge disappointment. And I wanted to believe that he wasn't right, but the experiences I've had over the next few days kind of confirmed that it wasn't a very friendly environment.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? Because on the, on the one hand, like you're a new person, you're, you know, you, you've, you've got your real hopes up for this job. And you've almost got like, you mentioned that culture culture's local, and that's such a new revelation for me. And it's almost, would you say that also, we are also, as individuals, culture within a local culture? We've all absolutely. got our own thoughts and beliefs and et cetera.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely we are. And it's fascinating because nowadays I talk about BYOC, um, and it might sound a little bit cheesy, but I'll explain what it is. So recently in, in July, actually, I went to the US and this time every single restaurant that we went to had the BYOB, bring your own booze. And in Europe, it's not that popular. So I asked my American friends, why is it so popular in the US? And I thought that it might have something to do with the alcohol license. And they said, well, this is one of the reasons. But then another reason is that people really love enjoying their favorite wine. And sometimes they can't find this wine on the wine list. And so they will bring their own to complement a wonderful meal. And I thought, well, it's interesting because I think in a way we can bring our own culture to the uh, culture that surrounds us, and it's really very important. So, I absolutely w- agree with you. And sometimes I say that we are all responsible for the culture in the radius of two or three meters from where we stand. So, basically, wherever we go, we can bring whatever is missing from that situation. And for me, it took a little bit of time to realize that I didn't need a permission from anyone to do it um, because it felt like. Um, it's important to fit in and it's important to be part of that system. And sometimes, frankly, it felt like it wasn't safe enough to bring my own culture into the situation. But with time, I realized that um, it's not just about fitting in. It's also about fitting out. Um, And you need to combine the two. And so I started experimenting with that and realized that when you can respect the existing culture to a certain extent and understand why it exists and what it does and why people still behave in certain ways Um, but at the same time introduce as you say your own um, personal culture then um, you have a huge power to shift things Um, and that kind of encouraged me to dig deeper and learn more about how this whole process works.
0: It's so many thoughts coming up for me it's it's there's something about, I understand the point about safety, and people don't always feel safe to bring more of themselves. But at the same time, there's, sort of, there's something there for me about accountability as well, and that if you allow yourself to stay in an environment or a culture that doesn't serve you and you don't serve them, like it's, it's in, I find it interesting. I'd like you to speak a little bit about that. How, in your work, how does that come up for you in terms of people bridging that gap of you know stepping into their power, being accountable, and not always asking for permission because I'm fully with you on that, but I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. I think there's a lot of fear around that, isn't there?
1: There is absolutely a huge amount of fear around that. And I think this is one of the major things that stops people from uh, bringing uh, their whole selves to work nowadays Um, because Our brains, as we all know, are wired for safety. Um, And we still carry the same brains that we had thousands of years ago. And in the savannah, if you were um, not fitting in, you were dead, basically. So our brain is trying to keep us safe. And our brain is holding us back in those situations. So you are absolutely right. I think that there is this tug of war um, if you have that aspiration to make a dent in the world and maybe bend history in the right direction on one hand, and you feel that accountability, you feel like you want to change things, then at the same time, of course, you will always experience fear. And for me, it's really interesting to see how that dance between the two plays out. Uh, Because frankly, I I don't buy into uh, fearless people and this whole concept that you can be fearless i think that um, only sociopaths probably don't experience fear (laughs) and it's not such a great place to be in but for the rest of us we do experience fear so it's all about experiencing it learning from it and doing certain things in spite of it
0: and is there could you speak to a little bit either a personal example or maybe some of your client work where you've seen the benefits Of people understanding their you know the organizational culture but still being able to bring more of their true selves I think you do work around cultural revolutionaries I believe yes
1: Yes, absolutely so let me talk a little bit about this concept of cultural revolutionaries what they are because this is this is one of the main breakthroughs in my work um, what I've realized works when it comes to culture change Um, because Clearly, you know, when you are part of a system, when you are part of a culture, uh, you have a number of choices of how you interact with that system. Um, And I noticed that basically there are two major axes that play into how people show up in, in that sort of context. One has to do with our sense of agency. So, you know, what is the extent to which we believe that we can make a difference and we can make a dent in, in the world and in how things are. And then the second axis is um, conformity and the extent to which we are willing and able to conform to the current rules. And so, you know, when you imagine these two axes, X and Y, of course, uh, you know, where I'm I'm driving, I'm driving at a four box model where you will have four different ways that that you can interact with, with those things. So of course, you know, when you have really high sense of agency and at the same time, really high sense of conformity, you will be the ambassador of the current culture. So you will be doing things in a way that are culturally acceptable within this organization, you will be explaining to others how things are done here, but of course, still, you will be constrained by the system. And I'm not going to walk you through the whole model, but what I'm trying to say is that especially this, this axis that has to do with conformity is important because we are also wired for choices and polarities. So we're thinking, okay, so I'm either going to conform or I'm, I'm going to not conform and to um, stand out or fit out as I call it um, and these are my choices and of course you know when you when you go on the spectrum depending on whether it's a safe environment or not you end up uh, behaving in ways that actually don't create that much change um, and in my in my work with clients and in my research I realized that actually people People who um, make the biggest change are people who work with and within the current culture um, and at the same time identify what are the bugs in the cultural algorithms that in a way um, drive the, the, the work environment and so I think my favorite example of all because it's so illustrative it actually it doesn't come from an organization I've worked with, um, as a client, but it comes from an organization that managed to turn lion killers into lion guardians. And it's an organization called lion guardians established by Lila Hazan. And basically what she did is she helped Maasai warriors who were the main reasons, um, that uh, the numbers of lions in Africa are decreasing so rapidly. So we had almost half a million lions uh, fifty years ago um, in Africa, and today we have only twenty thousand. And so she established this organization to protect lions, and she tried to figure out what would be the ways to do this, because one of the main reasons that lions disappear is the, the conflict of humans and um, and lions. Um, And she realized that the Maasai culture is um, to blame in a way because for Maasai, the main reason for a warrior's existence is to protect their tribes and also to protect the stock, the cows. And so she started wondering, is there a way to maintain that culture where you gain prestige and power within the tribe, um, but in different ways? And she established a new system and a new paradigm where those warriors are now still protecting their tribes and stock, but they do this by tracking lions and strengthening bomas so that lions cannot get to and kill stock. And also creating rituals where you still have this rite of passage as they used to have And in the past, by killing lions, at the moment they have a rite of passage that involves naming a lion, putting a tracking collar on it, and so on. So I think it's a wonderful illustrative example of how you try to understand culture. Number one, uh, what it does, why those cultural algorithms have been created, and then identify what is the smallest possible change that I could make to maintain the biggest part of the algorithm um, change a small part but at the same time had a huge impact um, so I don't know if you want to you know to ask me anything about that specific example before we talk about something else
0: yeah what I love about what you speak to Agarach is that sense of experimentation yeah. so actually finding that space within a prevailing culture to say yeah. okay you know, we don't need to be big big bang culture change here. We're like, what experiment can we run to test whether the system will accept or reject? And then maybe try another one and then try another one. But there's something about having courage mm-hmm. to do that. And I'd love, to, so I'd love for you to expand on that maybe a little bit more around is experimentation a key part of what you're seeing and is courage a key component of that or not?
1: Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And I'm really... Uh, Big on experimentation. This is one of the reasons why my podcast is called Culture Lab, because for me, it's all about um, making tiny, tiny tweaks and really observing uh, how they interact with a wider system. And it's really important, particularly when we talk about culture, uh, you know, those hidden, unwritten norms and patterns of behavior, and very often unconscious uh, beliefs, because uh, you cannot, it's impossible to create a huge change and a major overhaul of of these systems and worldviews. And so the only thing that you can do is to introduce a tiny change and see how the system reacts to that. And frankly, I I don't think that you can design those things. The only thing that you can do is, um, as you say, introduce something new and see whether it creates positive change or not. And to your point on courage, Certainly, when you introduce a different way of doing things, um, there is fear about, you know, is it going to work, right? And is it going to have a desired impact? Because if I stand out or, or fit out, it, it's a risky a situation and if I fail everyone will say yes of course because you know th- this is not the way we do things around here um, so I think courage is absolutely necessary to do those things but at the same time I also think that when you experiment perhaps you don't need huge amounts of courage because experimentation when you think about this is basically having a hypothesis and testing it and when you say it this way, you cannot have a negative outcome because whether the hypothesis is true or not, it's a positive outcome. It's a learning experience. And, and so when you have this mindset, let me test the hypothesis, I think that you, in a way, minimize the amount of courage that an individual needs to start doing things in a different way.
0: I love that, Aga. That's a wonderful reflection that you got me thinking about our uh, one of our mutual friend, stroke inspirations in Gary Ridge learning moment as he's yeah. known uh, on Twitter. And I just think that's such a powerful, because as you say, if, if, if it's just an experiment and it's within your sphere of influence, it's, it doesn't take that much courage and you don't really need to ask permission for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You don't absolutely. You don't have to ask for permission. You, um, also can introduce this mindset of experimentation so that you can learn rather than um, meet um, some sort of success criteria to your colleagues as well. And, um, you know, very often we talk, and I know that you are a proponent of this philosophy as well. We talk about how you really don't have to be the CEO to do those things. And I think each of us, irrespective of where we sit in the hierarchy, has the power to talk to the people who sit next to us and say, hey, how about we saw it this way? And hey, how about, you know, we, we just try it and see whether it works without telling anyone. And when you have some interesting conclusions to share with your colleagues, um, because you've experimented for a while and you've noticed that some things work, then you can talk to more people and maybe more people will embrace it. And I know through my work, but also interviewing a lot of our guests, that this is really how very often change, real change in organizations happens. So it's a movement in a way and very rarely is it a mandate, right? And I'm sure that, that you've seen this as well in your work.
0: It, it, it's so interesting because even within my my day job, as it were, um, when, we, when we kindly shared some time together in Switzerland recently with the Ignite Conference, yeah. I was sharing my story of, of my work organization, which fits very much what you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. which is actually, we didn't ask permission. Um, we believed it was the right thing to do. We was in a sphere of influence within our international sales team. And I think this is the important thing I'd like our listeners to hear as we talk, is I've never met a senior leader yet that said, oh, you gave me an extra 6 million in sales, don't do it again. No. Or <laughs> you increased yeah. attention of our staff, please stop doing that. So I think so that's, sort of, so I think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting, a hope, and I believe, hopeful message for our listeners. Mm. These experiments can really yield great value. Yes
1: and i absolutely love what you did and i i did listen to i i was at your speech and your workshops and they were amazing and by the way thank you for the work that you are doing and for sharing that work because i think people really need to hear those things and and learn from these examples and i i really do believe that this is absolutely true so we need to build a business case for the changes that we want to create in our work environment and as you say when you have positive business results then and there is no senior executive that will tell you stop doing it. Absolutely, unless it's illegal or right <laughs> violates some major rules. But other than that, I, I think that the only response that you can get is okay. Teach others how to do that, and how can we do more of it? Um, so in a way, yes, I think that we have way more power um, in our hands than, than we want to believe.
0: I love your I love what you've done with your model though it's beautiful that sort of agency versus conformity model it just it's so simple but powerful and and I'd love you to speak a little bit about how how do your clients engage with that particular model do they really do they see clarity very quickly as an oh yeah I sit there actually and maybe that's why x y or z occurs Mm.
1: Yes. So I think it's quite intuitive because it's one of those things where people have already observed these things and these behaviors in the workplace. So the model basically helps them to see what they have already observed and maybe put some structure to it um, and understand that it's a choice, actually, which of these boxes you sit in. And so interestingly, for me, the cultural revolutionaries are people who don't fit into any of these four boxes, And I think this is one of the major revelations for my clients because they go like, oh, so there is another way, a fifth way. And the fifth way is basically that cultural revolutionaries are off the charts when it comes to agency. So their sense of agency is very often even higher than the the highest of of that model. But also they move really swiftly on this spectrum of um, conformity. So they know that they need to pick their battles, you know, and certain things it's really not worth fighting against. And perhaps it's even important to acknowledge them and say, this is something that I respect. I understand why we do it this way. It's our heritage, tradition, or it simply works. It's not broken. So there is no point of, of changing it. Um, but then at the same time, when the stakes are high, when you really truly really believe, as you said, that this is the right thing to do, then you have the courage to fit out and do something different. And so the people who, the people who can really create that change, and I consider you to be one of the cultural revolutionaries, do exactly what you did. So you took things in your hands, basically, and I'm sure that you didn't challenge the status quo to an extent where your company would say, you have to leave now, right? Because y- you've shaken the boat so much that 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 it's dangerous for everyone to be in that boat. You've worked with the culture and within the culture. And that's why you are so successful. So I think actually you are a perfect example of what the cultural revolutionary does. And... Also, as a result, as I know from, from your work and what you have shared, there are now other departments that are adapting these practices. And, and this is how things usually happen. So you end up with a movement and it kind of spreads throughout the organization and other organizations as well. I know that your case study is going to be presented um, by Harvard Business School to teach students of how to do those things. So yeah, this is how it happens. You're yeah, a great study. Gary
0: uh, well you're, you're very kind to feedback on that Aga but I, th- I think what what I'm so excited about is that and I remember I remember when we was talking in Switzerland is it wasn't always obvious to me mm-hmm. I used to be the guy I was the guy that was in that I love your metaphor of the boat like the boat that I used to rock three years ago was not a nice boat to be in because mm. I think part of my if I'm being vulnerable the name on this podcast at that time probably four years ago the the cultural change that I believed was right was because it's about me. It wasn't like, I knew it was the right thing to do, but I was leading it because I wanted to be seen for X or I wanted this to be seen for Y rather than in itself being the right thing to do for the organization and the people. Mm -hmm. The shift for me actually was a year later going, Oh, actually it's not about me. I can bring some gifts to this. I can aid the process, Mm. but it isn't about me. And it's incredible how the universe opened up and went, okay, no, it's not about you, Gary, we'll make this happen. Yes. Does that sit with you personally or with any of the work that you do around that sort of move from I to we and that enabling culture change?
1: Oh, absolutely. And this is actually one of the the findings. So when I started looking at um, the people who I consider to be cultural revolutionaries, one of the characteristics was that they lead from the heart and purpose rather than the ego. And I think that speaks to your transformation. So initially it was all about you and your personal needs. And then eventually you were able to connect to something that was um, bigger than you and uh, gave you meaning beyond personal agenda. And And I think this is a common denominator for all the people that are able to really make significant changes because, um, and we know this, no one really connects with a leader um, who just wants to serve their own personal agenda, right? But it's pretty evident um, when someone does this in an authentic way uh, and compelling, it's really compelling when you see someone who decides um, to take things in their own hands because it's something that is going to create a lot of common good. Um, So absolutely, that, that absolutely connects and clicks and this is exactly what what um, I've observed with other people who have created cultural change in their organizations.
0: Well, thank thank you so much for sharing. I'm, you're an awesome human being anyway, but you speak four languages, which I find fascinating. So (laughs) I'm gonna take a little bit of a a segue. English, Greek, Polish, and Russian. That is a very eclectic mix, I think it's amazing. (laughs) Thank you, you. How did you, like, they're quite different areas of Europe, you know, sort of, you know, Asia, almost like how did that come about if you worked in different countries i think you worked for a while in cyprus if i remember
1: correctly. Mm-hmm. so i greek uh, i worked in greece i lived in greece for 11 12 years um and it's uh, i think especially back then it was impossible to live and work in greece without speaking greek um so that's one of the reasons i speak greek and second reason is that my husband is greek and that certainly helps because we speak greek at home so i have a lot of practice Polish it's my mother tongue actually so I was born and raised in Poland and back then um, I was growing up in the 70s and in the 80s it was actually obligatory to learn Russian so this is how I learned Russian so here you go and English was well actually my father for some reason back then he was absolutely convinced that I will need english in the future that this was the language that's going to open doors for me and so he insisted on me taking english lessons since i think i was eight or or nine years old um so these are the languages and now i live in italy so i speak a little bit of italian as well but i'm not very proud of my italian so i decided this is one of my new years um uh, resolutions that I'm going to take lessons on Italian and really make sure that my Italian is way better than it is today.
0: I just love how you role model this curiosity and desire to learn you know as we've spoken today that learning piece that continuous experimentation iteration comes through loud and clear but I love how you do that with yourself I think it's a real yeah. congruence around what you're trying to bring to the world and how you live did you yeah. feel that yourself
1: I've always loved learning, so there's something there, yes, absolutely. Um, I think this is one of the probably most powerful forces that drives me, to be honest, curiosity and, and wanting to learn things. Um, I, you know, I'm an introvert. I think that when you are an introvert, um, you spend a lot of time with yourself, reflecting, very often reading and trying to figure things out. So that certainly helps. And yes, yeah, so this is um, this is uh, probably the way that I show up in the world. It's just my natural natural way of being, being curious and always trying to understand how people work and how things work as well.
0: You won't be able to see this as you're listening to our conversation, but there is an incredible array of books behind uh, Agar if we have this conversation. So she's not lying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And, you know, this is just a tiny sample of my collection because we've moved around quite a bit. And at at a certain point, we're moving from Cyprus to Venice in Italy. And the apartment we found in Venice and most of the apartments in Venice um, are a small Unless, of course, you can afford living in a palazzo, but otherwise they're quite small. And B, they are fully furnished. And so we had to give up some of our furniture and clearly some of my books. So actually I donated a huge part of my book collection uh, when I was in Cyprus to Polish school. Most of them were in Polish. Um, so yeah, so this is just a small sample.
0: As we start to look to wrap up, I'd also like to ask, if I may, what was the what was the catalyst for you to leave your cu- comfortable full-time job and set up the culture lab set mm-hmm. up on your own what was going on for you and what was yeah what's the catalyst for you to mm-hmm. set up and follow your follow your purpose
1: mm. you know i'm taking a pause to think about this because i want to do justice to this question which is a which is a really important question and it kind of helps me to reflect as well um I think that I've always had this desire to be very independent. I know that one of my personal values, uh, if not the number one personal value, is freedom. So certainly that was one of the decisive factors um, to create a space when I can be as free as possible and create a world in which I believe others can thrive as well. Um, so that was one of the reasons. and. Um, I think also um, the catalyst, actually, it's a personal story, was um, a colleague of mine as I was working in PwC, um, the, the person who was responsible for our team, she was an amazing human being, Haragranot, and... You know, when I was moving to Cyprus and moving to PwC, specifically in Cyprus, everyone, all of my consulting colleagues um, back then in Greece, I was working in Hay Group, Conferi now, in Greece, they were saying, don't join PwC, it's just terrible. They will squeeze you like a lemon and then throw you out. They have the worst culture ever. And and so I eventually decided to join PwC anyway. And it was so interesting because in that firm that had such bad reputation, I joined a team, speaking of culture is local, that was just amazing. So this woman was really amazing and created um, an amazing team. And as we're working together, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and eventually, unfortunately, lost her battle to breast cancer and... It felt like, um, in a way, you know, that that environment and the experiences that we had together, it, it really couldn't be recreated. And I felt like it was time to move on, um, in a way. Um, so that was, that was one of the catalysts as well, for me leaving PwC, which otherwise actually turned out to be an amazing organization, and I had a lot of fun and, and learned a lot as well.
0: Beautiful, thank, thank you so much for sharing. I always find that fascinating to find out a bit of, a bit of the origin story. Mm. And final, I'd love you to speak a little bit about the mentoring relationship that you started recently with Unreasonable. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't heard of them before I reviewed your profile and they look incredible. So I'd love to give them maybe a bit of a shout out. And also, what are you hoping to A, bring, but B, learn through that experience?
1: Yeah. So the Unreasonable Group is one of the most awesome organizations in the world. I believe Um, they have an amazing mission of supporting entrepreneurs who solve what they called BFPs, big fucking problems. And some of these. am I allowed to swear on this podcast? We'll we'll put
0: a little E on it. It's fine. (laughs)
1: And so, you know, those problems include um, ocean plastic, climate change, illiteracy, um, diversity, and so on and so forth. And they work with young entrepreneurs, uh, organizations that are in growth stage, and so preparing to scale, basically. And um, they do incredible work. Part of their activities, because they also fund these companies, so they find investors that that invest in these companies, they do anything necessary to remove roadblocks um, that that these companies might find. And one of the initiatives that uh, they have is what is called um, unreasonable impact which is a program, a two-week program uh, for CEOs of these companies where they have an opportunity to tap to the collective wisdom um, of other entrepreneurs, but also people from various organizations. Um, Barclays is one of the organizations that sponsors it. And so um, I have had tremendous luck and privilege uh, to be a mentor on, on their programs. So in terms of my hopes of what I want to contribute um, and what I want to get out of it, first, I want to say you know, no matter what you want to contribute, you definitely get more out of it. It's just incredible because the amount of inspiration that I got from these incredible people who put everything on the line to create something out of nothing very often to, you know, to make a dent in the world, to create positive change. It's just amazing. And I'm so grateful because really you know going away from this program and you never go away because you you continue working with these organizations but but going away from every interaction with these people i go away richer more brave more positive and more hopeful for the future for our world so i'm definitely getting way more than i can ever give them back um but what you do as a mentor basically especially when you specialize in culture as someone like me is just help them figure out you know how how to be more intentional about cultivating a culture that will help them be successful. Um, So it's all about shedding a little bit of light on on this thing called culture, demystifying it and, and working with them to help them cultivate the right culture for their organization.
0: You're such an inspiration, got honestly. I'm t- I was saying before we came on that I have the privilege of meeting you before coming on the podcast, which is a rarity. Yeah. So thank you for the work you're doing, how you show up. And I love the podcast. I loved particularly I listened to Seth Godin recently and I thought that conversation yeah. was fantastic.
1: It is amazing.
0: So keep up your amazing work. Thank you so thank much for me. what you do. And how can people follow up with you, connect with you? What's the best mediums to reach you? Aga?
1: So the easiest way to find me is Google Agabayer A-G-A-B-A-J-E-R. And this is also my website, so agabayer.com. And you will find the blog and the podcast there. And you can also reach out to me. Just send me an email at aga at agabayer.com.
0: I'll make sure they're all on the show notes. And thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Gary. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Wow, wow, wow. What an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed that um, dialogue and discussion with Aga. I really hope that you, if you're kind enough to stay with us for the duration of that conversation, also took a lot away. What I'd like to share with you are just a few of the other Um, reflections that are really sitting with me following this conversation. One was where Aga spoke about the fact that what is the smallest possible change that I could make to maintain the biggest part of the algorithm? Change a small part, but at the same time have a huge impact. So if you're listening to that reflection, what is it within your immediate sphere of influence? At work, maybe even at home, but particularly at work, what is it? What's the small little tweak that you can make? Maybe you work in HR, maybe you work in sales... You know What what part of your sales process or which um, intervention within HR do you think you could actually experiment with? Maybe just tweak a bit and just see if you get a slightly different impact, which could be exponential depending on how it fits within the cultural algorithm. I think there's so much in that. I also enjoyed her talking about the fact that this is really how very often real change within organizations happens. It's a movement in a way. Very rarely is it a mandate. I really remember this uh, wonderful slide share by Accenture um, a few years ago and they said about the um, busting or debunking the myths of change. What the myth was is that all change is led top down and it was something like three quarters of all change is actually middle out. It actually comes from people like you and I, um, no matter where we sit within an organisation, actually stepping up, being courageous and actually, tweaking some of these cultural algorithms, running some experiments without asking permission. Um, it's a really, really powerful reflection, that for me. Also, interesting to hear her speak about the fact that she realized that people who make the biggest change are people who work with and within the current structure, and at the same time, identify what are the bugs in the cultural ag- algorithm that, in a way, drive the work environment. This has been a massive learning for me personally over the last 12 months, in particular. Uh, for those that have followed my personal journey and that of my workplace as I've implemented change, transformational change in some aspects, and going from one state to another, has actually been that realization that you really do need to work with the leaders, with the colleagues that are willing to run these experiments, the people that are willing to stand up and be counted. You know, if you wait if you're sitting around waiting for someone else to advocate or to offer you the opportunity to enact some of these changes you could be waiting a very very long time as in the rest of your life so find your community find those around you that are willing to run some experiments but also within the structure, you know, understand the power dynamics. That's one of my big learnings last year was it's not always who you think it is that holds the power within the organisation. Holding the pa- holding the purse strings, having the money is one thing. You don't actually need a lot of money to enact some of the changes that are most transformational, and I can speak from experience around that. So I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please do connect with Aga, do connect with me. I'd love to learn what you're taking away from this conversation. And, yeah, if you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd love you to share the podcast with those in your network leave us a five-star rating if you don't mind on your um, podcast platform of choice but until next time please do engage it'd be fantastic to learn what you're taking away and implementing following this conversation and until next time my name's Gary Turner and you'll find me at Turner 0 on Twitter or you can find me uh, I'm an interpersonal catalyst and you'll find that name alongside Gary Turner on LinkedIn so uh, take care for now